All right, good morning, church. You guys are a little too cordial this morning. Let's rein it in. Right? Quick high, quick high, quick air high five, and let's, uh, no. Good morning and welcome. My name is Dusty. If we haven't had the chance to get to meet or know each other yet, I got the privilege of being on staff here. And I'm, I'm really excited this morning. Uh, two of my four kids are in middle school, uh, so I could not be more excited to have Michael here and get to hear a little bit about his story over the last couple of weeks as we've been kind of walking towards him joining our team here. And, and I think the Lord just really blessed us with he and his fiance, Dominique. I'm also very excited that kids ministry is going on again today. Uh, the kids team was incredible what they did over this last week to put that together. And uh, I think just as a parent, I need to miss my kids sometimes. I just think that it's better for me and it's better for them. And now that we're homeschooling and home everythinging, you know, having them here was a super big gift. And having them not here is also a super big gift. So I thank God for both of those, of those gifts. I'm also very excited to be sharing with you today from my favorite disciple. Peter's my favorite disciple. I'll tell you why in just a few minutes. But with that excitement, uh, there's also a heaviness uh, in my heart today. You know, just a few days ago, we again mourned 9-11 and all the lives that were lost during uh, that terrible uh, attack. And uh, you, you, kind of how our world was forever changed. And, uh, and then I look at the news, you know, and I see the, the fires that are physically burning in our, our home state, as well as the, the cultural and political fires that are burning across the whole country, metaphorically. And we're just, we're in a bit of an overwhelming season. Right? If I'm honest, I look out, it's, it's, it's easy to get overwhelmed. But I was reminded this week reading that the answer to all of those situations is the same. It's Jesus, right? I mean, when we look at, you know, what are we supposed to do when there's, when there's a heart that's so lost that it thinks it's doing God's will by running a plane into a building? It's only the love of Jesus that can change that heart. You know, when we think about the families that are, are we're trying to comfort the families that lost somebody that day, and it's only the comfort of the Holy Spirit that can, that can heal that heart. And when we look at our country, Jesus is the only hope. And I praise God that Jesus is the hope that we have today. And so let's turn towards him in prayer this morning before we start. He promised us in scripture that if we'll humble ourselves, if we'll pray, uh, that he will hear us, that he will heal our land. And so we're going to appeal to that this morning. Uh, join me. Heavenly Father, uh, it is a joy to gather as your people, Lord, with your people, filled with your Holy Spirit. God, to sit and open your word, which gives us wisdom for all things. But God, our hearts are just heavy. Lord, I pray for comfort for all of the families who are reliving their most terrible moments, Lord, as, as every September 11th comes around, that the, the comfort of your Holy Spirit would be near to them, I pray. God, for all the firefighters, men and women who are, who are battling uh, all the fires all throughout our state, Lord, for all the people who have been displaced or our Lord, for all those who are grieving the loss of a loved one during these fires, we pray that your, your grace would just descend and your mercy would just descend. And Lord, for our country, uh, we look to you, God, and we look to you, and that is not uh, an empty hope, God, but a living hope. We know that it is you who will be on the throne in November, that it is you who are on the throne now and forevermore. And it is in the name of Jesus that we put our hope. Amen. Amen. Well, I said earlier that Peter was my favorite disciple. And I think that's because Peter was a bit of a knucklehead at his core. 
Uh, he was like incredibly passionate, sometimes irresponsibly so. And he just said and did stuff that when I look at the scripture, I, could, like, I, I would probably say that. I would probably do that. Yes, Jesus, I'll go and die with you. I have no idea who Jesus is. And just that, that humanness of Peter draws me into him because I'm encouraged when I see that that same Peter, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit, became the rock that God used to build his church. And so I'm reminded, right, of, of kind of our fickle human natures. And then once we're filled with God's Holy Spirit, anything is possible. But we're continuing in our series this morning, Life Under Pressure. And I think we can all agree that we're living in that place right now, aren't we? That we're living under several pressures and Peter is going to help us navigate this season that we're in. And guys, the early church was birthed into a very charged political climate. From the very beginning, opposition to the way of Jesus Christ has been very present. You know, I read this week that there was an early term that was used to describe the believers, the followers of the way. It's the Greek word hagios. Now, it, it most often is translated to saint or set apart one, which is true. But at its core, it's, it's got a more basic definition. At its core, the word means different. Different. The Christian is fundamentally different. It always has been. At those times, Caesar forced worship of himself upon the people. So every Roman citizen had to go into the temple, built to Caesar, sprinkle a pinch of incense and burn it and say, Caesar is Lord. And from the very beginning, the followers of Jesus said, we won't do that. We recognize one king. And it's not Caesar. Christians simply wouldn't do it. There were things that Christians were doing that was different during those times. It was a common practice to take children that you didn't want and abandon them in the forest. And it was the followers of Jesus, a carpenter from Nazareth, who would go and find those babies and pick them up and raise them. Different. From the beginning, they've been different. While society looked down on the poor, figured that they had done something to deserve their plight, it was the Christians who cared for them, who gave resources to them, who validated their humanness. Christians were different. While the entire culture just reveled in, in drunkenness and sexual promiscuity, blurred with pagan religion, it was the Christians who abstained. From the beginning, we've been different. And I was encouraged this week. Why am I so surprised that my beliefs and practices and political views are criticized as being different? But Peter is going to encourage you and I with some truths about how to walk through this season. If you didn't get a chance to hear last week's message, I would encourage you to listen to it. George kicked off this season by encouraging us in a few things I'd like to reiterate this morning. George encouraged you and I to become students of God's word during this season, to make the choice to let the living and active word of God shape more of our thoughts than any podcast, blogger, author, or talking head that we find on the news. That it would be the word of God that we would engage with that we would seek to grow as followers of Jesus in our devotion to him. And at the end of this election season, that we wouldn't be more devout Democrats or Republicans, but more devout followers of Jesus. That our ultimate hope is not in the government or in the next president, but in the one who formed the next president in his mother's womb. Jesus. But it's encouraging to read that the early church wanted similar political help from Jesus. 
We said he stepped into a charged climate and they were looking for him to upend the Roman rule. They were expecting Jesus to bring in the Calvary to make everything right. But Jesus had other plans. He had higher plans. Matthew 12, 18 and 19 says, Look at my servant whom I have chosen. He is my beloved who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not fight or shout or raise his voice in public. From the beginning, Jesus had no desire to become a political rallying point. He was building a kingdom of heaven. And Peter is going to remind you and I to continually draw our eyes to that Jesus, even in the season that we're in today. We're going to be looking at a, a big passage of Scripture today. Open your Bibles, swipe, whatever it is that you do digitally to get to 1 Peter. Chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verses 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. And now we live with great anticipation. And we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. And through your faith, God is protecting by His power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. Guys, there is so much going on in this passage, but right away we're awakened to the truth that you and I are to be glad. That we're to be glad. That there is great joy that we can find in this inheritance that we have, but it also simultaneously reveals there's this unseen reality to the Christian life, to all of life. And what is that unseen reality? It's the inheritance that we just spoke about. The inheritance that's the source of the great joy that we're supposed to have. The inheritance, this priceless inheritance that it says that God is keeping for you and I in heaven is our salvation in Jesus Christ. It's the truth that for those who have professed faith in Jesus, that your story and my story will end face to face with the Lamb of God. With every sin having been removed from us, with every infirmity having been removed from us, standing and just enjoying perfect communion with Him forever. That's the end of our story, regardless of what's written between now and then. And just thinking about that, just thinking about that day, keeping our eyes fixed on that day gives you and I the strength and the hope to walk through the days in between. We were talking to our kids the other night at dinner, and we were saying, how much fun is it to celebrate somebody's birthday with them? We have a big extended family, some are across the country, but when you get to be with people on their birthday, it's just fun. It's fun to sing happy birthday while you're looking somebody in the eye and telling them that you're glad they were born. Can you imagine what it's like to sing praises to the Father directly? This morning we got to sing praises about our God and to our God, but can you imagine looking at Him as you sing His praises? My goodness. Heaven is going to be a pretty incredible experience. But sometimes it feels a long ways off. If I'm honest, living with that great expectation, that hope of heaven, sometimes feels like it's so far away, it's almost a nice idea. But practically speaking, there's a lot of stuff I got to walk through. And sometimes it's just hard for me. 
I look at the current climates and I wonder, will my kids ever go back to like a normal school? Will they ever play a sport again? Will I wear a mask all the time and constantly be reminded about the importance of carrying breath mints? I look at our country and I wonder, will the left and the right ever somehow find some semblance of peace? Will we ever live in, 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 in racial peace where we feel comfortable loving and just, just engaging with one another? But I'm reminded, guys, that my eternal hope does not lie in the resolution of any of those things. It says we have an eternal hope, an eternal inheritance kept in heaven by God the Father for you and me. Our hope is in the eternal reign of Jesus Christ, his defeat of death itself. And that's why I have to choose to place my hope again and again and again because I'm prone to forget. And the awesome thing is that when I'm anchored in that reality, I don't disengage from all these things going on in my culture. I actually engage in them with God's mind and with God's love and with His truth and not my own. I'm actually more equipped to enter any of those broken places when I'm anchored in the love of Jesus. And where does this hope come from? Look at verse 3. It says, We have this hope because God raised Jesus from the dead. Do you ever reflect on the truth that our faith is not built on this gathering? Our faith is built on an actual event that happened in human history. When the person Jesus was murdered, crucified for you and I, and then actually came back to life, proving that he was God's one and only son. That's what we look to to draw our hope. That's what we look to to draw our expectation. He's already defeated death once. And because of that, you and I can do this. You and I can look ahead, anchored in that truth, and we can walk through this current and challenging season with both hope and expectation. So all we have to do is trust God. It's super easy. Not really. Let's keep reading. Verse 6. So be truly glad there is wonderful joy ahead, even though you have to endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold, though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So, when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. Peter gives us a beautiful picture of our hope in the first couple of verses, and now he's encouraging you and I to hold tight to that hope as we walk into difficult seasons of life. And I think we can all agree that this is a season that feels like trial. I don't know if I agree that it sounds like trials for a little while. It's felt more like trials for a long while. And I don't know about you, but I, I feel prone to misinterpret the testing of my faith. Bad things that come against me are bad things that are looking to destroy me, and I just push back against them. And I don't pause long enough to think, what is it that God might be doing in these things? I feel like these bad situations are just bad, and they're just pressing in on me. But the scripture compares the testing of our faith to subjecting gold to extreme heat. 
which I imagine doesn't feel awesome for the gold. But you know what happens during that process is that impurities work their way out and are burned off. And I don't know that I ever have the sobriety of mind to recognize that there are parts of my life and parts of my personality and parts of who I am at a core that needs to be burned off. If I'm going to do the things that God's called me to do. And that intense heat is not designed to destroy the gold, but to make the gold stronger. I look at the things that I test before I use them. Whenever I go out for a surf, especially if the surf's a little big, I want to make sure that my equipment is working. From as basic to, have you waxed your board? To Is your leash still in one piece? And you give the leash a, a yank. I don't, I've never met a leash, but I imagine it doesn't feel awesome to be a leash and be yanked like that. But ultimately, that's a leash's purpose. And just like I test these things, not with the intent to destroy them, but so that they're ready to do what they were designed for. And what if I started to see the trials in my life as that? Not welcome and not enjoyable. Like we just said, we just, it, the picture is of a metal passing through fire. But what would happen if the mindset was that I'm going through these things that I might be ready to do that which God created me for? That these trials are not meant to destroy me, but to strengthen me. And I think with any other hope, that that entire activity would just be futile. But with the hope that's anchored in the very end of time, I can be pulled through any trial. I think that's the only rational way that you can approach what James said in chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, where he famously said, Brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Anybody work out? Anybody exercise here? I clearly don't. Um, my son is a, is a freshman, and he's starting to play high school, and they're starting to exercise, and they're starting to lift weights. And you start to get this feeling, like after you lift weights, you feel awful. Because you've physically damaged your muscles, right? You've pushed them beyond, you've stretched, you've actually torn the muscle, that the muscle might rebuild itself back and be what? Stronger. And it's like, I understand that so obviously in so many things in life, except when it comes to my faith. I expect to be able to feed my faith baby food and imagine it to be able to lift the weights that are going to come its way. And I just don't do that with anything else. And I love that James also says when trials, many kinds are coming. No if, no in the event that you might face a trial. When trials come. James was making us a promise. Guys, trials are on their way to you. But give your faith a chance to develop endurance, just like you do when you go exercise and you press your body. Let your faith be pressed that it might do what God intended it to do. And when I have that mindset that these trials are perfecting my faith, I don't enjoy the trial, but I can consider it joy of what it's producing in me, what God is doing in me, and how he might be able to use me on the other side. Rick Warren said that most often our greatest ministries will come out of our, our greatest pain. The trials that you've walked through are really the trials that you're going to be able to step into the life of another person and minister, not hypothetically, but practically. You know, one of my favorite stories is 
three men were walking along uh, a road and they came across a big hole and they saw a man down in the bottom of the hole. First man was a councilman and he said, we shouldn't have holes like this in our city. I'm going to start a committee and we're going to get all the holes filled. As the guy tried to reach for his hand, he walked away. Next guy worked at a church. He said, oh my gosh, we're going to start a 24-hour prayer vigil. We're going to pray for you and we're going to get you out of here. And as the guy reached for his hand, he, he waved and walked by. The third one was his best friend. He kind of surveyed the hole for a second and then he jumped in. His friend was like, you idiot. Now we're both in the hole. And he said, I was in a hole like this a few years ago and God showed me how to get out. Guys, that's how we can consider the testing of our faith pure joy because nothing else about a test feels good except for that which it's producing in us, allowing us to walk through these seasons. Speaking of seasons, football season is back. Praise the Lord Jesus. Last night, or I guess it was two nights ago, hearing the sultry sounds of Al Michaels and Chris Collinsworth was like spiritual oil to my soul. Have I convinced you enough about how much I enjoy football? No? I keep going. I have other analogies. But when you're watching football and you're watching specifically a running back, a good running back does a few things, but one of the things that they do is they exhibit patience and they follow behind their lead blocker. They stay right behind them, trusting them to clear the path, following their direction, and just responding. And I just had this picture as we were watching football this week that, Lord, during this season... I pray that that's what we would be like as a church. Eyes fixed on Jesus, just following in behind him, wherever he goes, not getting out in front of him, not deciding that we know which way is best, but just humbly following after Jesus and staying in that path that he creates for us. But what does it look like to follow Jesus through these trials? Is it just effort and, and white knuckle in our faith and trying to hold on tight? No, guys, the real life manifestation of your faith and my faith is one simple word, obedience. Obedience is the natural response of the faithful. And I really want to encourage you guys and myself today, obeying is not easy. But the decision to obey Jesus is the easiest decision we'll ever make. When you and I see God for who he is, when we experience his life-changing love, then obeying his every word should be the most natural desire of our heart. Doesn't make it easy, but it makes it very clear. A bunch of the dads and I, Rod and I, and, and Mark Thrash, a couple of guys coach over at the Boys and Girls Club. We coach our daughter's basketball. And it's super fun. And I was just thinking, imagine if, you know, I looked at the roster and I see that I have Phil Jackson's daughter on my team. Phil Jackson, 11-time uh, world champion coach for the NBA would it be hard if Phil came up and said, you know, I got a couple ideas about an offense you guys could run. You know, I, I can help if you want me to help coach. I'd probably go, you know, Phil, this is Boys and Girls Club. I mean, I know the NBA is one thing, but this is, this is real ball here, Phil. How easy would it be to obey his wisdom? To know that he's, he's a proven winner. He's got a great plan for me. Yes, Phil, please come in and teach us. This is the attitude that we should approach the scripture. Is it easy for me to live out the precepts that God has in here for me? Absolutely not, thanks to my flesh. But is the decision to submit myself to this book and to anything the Lord calls me to, it's an easy decision. It's an easy decision when I see God for who he is. 
Let's look back at the scripture. Verse 8. Verse 8 says, You love him even though you've never seen him. And though you do not see him now, you trust him. And you rejoice with a glorious and inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. The salvation was something even the prophets wanted to know more about when they prophesied about this gracious salvation prepared for you. They wondered what time or situation the Spirit of Christ within them was talking about when he told them in advance about Christ's suffering and his great glory afterward. They were told that their messages were not for themselves, but for you. And now this great news has been announced to you by those who preached in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It is all so wonderful that even the angels are eagerly watching these things happen. Guys, ours is a living hope. Ours is an invisible hope. (laughs) That's what makes it difficult. But guys, the encouragements found in just this passage of Scripture is so incredible. The source of our hope is the victory of Jesus, and I thank God it's not based on our performance. This good news, guys, was handed down through people who were faithful and obedient to God's call in their life, and that's why you and I are sitting where we are today. And how cool is it to think that even the angels in heaven are anxiously awaiting as they watch these events unfold. Guys, we talked in the beginning about a hope and a joy. This is it. It's clinging to Jesus through the trials of life. It's making him the focal point of our thoughts. But guys, we have to make a conscious decision to place the things of God above the things that we can see. To choose to look forward in expectation to the things that we've been promised. Guys, so far in this short passage of Scripture, Peter has encouraged you and I to look ahead to our hope of heaven and walk forward in faith through trials, to hold tightly to Jesus and to follow along after him and to value these things that are eternal and not even the problems that are temporal. But I'm still faced with how. What does that actually practically look like? Peter gets a little bit more specific in verse 13. So think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For as the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Guys, more than ever, Peter's encouragement is for you and I to rein in our minds, is to really tighten the belt on our thinking. He says, think clearly and exercise self-control. When? when I'm about to respond on social media, when I'm about to tell somebody who I don't know exactly why I disagree with the sign that they're holding, when I talk to my friends and family. Peter's words are so wise. Think clearly. Exercise self-control. Why? So you can pause long enough to fall back under the control of the Holy Spirit as opposed to under the control of my flesh. To let the Word of God and not popular thought Describe how it is that you and I think. To trust that through the Holy Spirit, God will give you and I the wisdom. Scripture says, for 
leading lives of godliness, he's already given us everything we need. Do I trust that he would show me how it is I'm supposed to raise my kids? How to love my wife? How to vote in the next election? Scripture says that he will give us richly the wisdom that we ask for. The question is, are we asking for it? And do you notice how many times Peter used the word must? This stuff isn't an option for us who profess the name of Jesus. I think now more than ever, it's time for us to demonstrate practical obedience in how we think and how we conduct ourselves that we might have a witness that's viable at the end of this election season. Verse 17. Remember that the Heavenly Father to whom you pray has no favorites, He will judge or reward you according to what you do. So you must live in reverent fear of him during your time as foreigners in this land. For you know that God paid a ransom to save you from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of Jesus Christ, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. God chose him as your ransom long before the world began. But he has now revealed him to you in these last days. Guys, we are saved by faith, saved by grace, rather, through faith, and not of anything that we do. It is entirely the work of God. You know, we even said in verse 3 that it was by His great mercy that we've been born again. But we have to justify scriptures like this where you and I are commanded to respond. Are we commanded to respond in obedience so that we might be worthy of our salvation? I don't think so. I think it's to remind us in this scripture what salvation actually cost God the Father. Do you see the motivation for our obedience? It's the reminder of what it cost. It goes back to the precious blood of the Lord Jesus. Seeing him and his sacrifice clearly moves you and I to a life of obedience. There's just no such thing as a bloody Savior and a lazy Christian. They just don't line up. Do you think that the men and women in our armed forces who are alive today because one of their peers sacrificed themselves, do you think they ever have to remind themselves to be grateful? Do you think when the day comes around, they have to remind themselves to feel some gratitude and to feel grateful and maybe send flowers or a card to the family? Or do you think it just naturally pours out of them? All of us sitting here are alive because of the death of another. Jesus Christ gave his life that you and I might be returned to the Father in a perfect relationship. And yet, it disgusts me how often I look at my own heart and I have to like try to pull out obedience and try to pull out devotion. It's like I, I can just wrestle with that, the scriptures where Paul is just talking about what a wretched guy that I am. It's like I know what I want to do and why am I getting up in the morning and reminding myself to show devotion and reverence for the one who loves me? Or I think that somehow being obedient is going to cost me some of my fun or my freedom. Gosh, all the rules in the Scripture. What if everything that God placed in Scripture, He did for your benefit and my benefit? What if the loving guardrails He's put up is because He actually knows how a marriage, how society, how parenting, how businesses, how the entire world works best and then gave us those truths. My family and I are heading back to Yosemite in a few weeks. When I drive those sketchy roads, do I ever look down at the guardrail and think, stupid guardrail? 
restrictive guardrail, doesn't respect what I believe to be true about the cliff on the other side, what is the only purpose of a guardrail? To keep me from tumbling to my death. Even the things that our Heavenly Father has called us to in obedience are for your benefit and my benefit. The most natural thing to do is to submit, but the problem is my flesh usually wants to run the other way. We live in dangerous times where truth is really whatever we want it to be. And as my old mentor, he said, famously and routinely to me. And how exactly is that working out for you? If we look around, uncertain truth mixed with incredible amounts of pride has led for a recipe of disaster in our society today. But when God's men and God's women submit to God's truth, then beautiful things happen. But guys, this is the path of obedience. It's constantly returning back to the Savior and His Word and asking Him to reorient us, to help us unlearn what society and what our own flesh has taught us in that previous 24-hour period. I don't spend my mornings in God's Word out of strength. I spend my mornings in this book out of weakness because I know that more than 24 hours out of this book, I'm pretty far off course already. My father-in-law is an incredible um, carpenter amongst many other things. And... Uh, he has not only been an incredible encouragement for me spiritually in my life and an example of long obedience to his family, but he's incredibly skilled with his hands. And when my wife and I got married, I got to kind of like apprentice to him whenever he was doing a job around the house. And when we first got married, we couldn't afford to buy furniture, so he and I would make furniture, which turns out to be just as expensive as buying furniture when you go buy the lumber. But you got to make it yourself. Um, and so, and he had an entire garage full of every tool. So not only did he have the, the, the wisdom that he needed, but he had all of the tools that he needed as well. Now, here's the thing. All I had to do was show up, and my father-in-law reflects the heart of Jesus in that he's a teacher, and he would just teach me whatever it was that we were doing that day, and he had the tools for it. But in the beginning... And during making that furniture, I had to continually choose that he knew better. I had to continually trust that he had the right tools for the job that we were doing, and I had to keep coming back to him and asking for guidance. And this is what the life of obedience to our carpenter, Jesus Christ, looks like. It's trusting that every day you can come towards him as he runs towards you, and trust that he's going to give you the wisdom that you need for that day and that sitting in his boxes, every tool that you have. You know, there were times that I would get stuck in the job and my father-in-law would pull out a tool. I didn't even know what it was. And it was exactly the tool for that part of construction. How many testimonies are that of your spiritual life following Jesus? Where he's provided what you didn't even know that you needed before you even asked for it. So this is what the life looks like for you and I in this season. Choosing to submit ourselves to God's word. To let that become the basis for which we create all of our stances on anything. In humility sometimes to say, I don't know. Or to let the scripture sit over us 
not approaching the scripture to decide which parts of this book I like and which parts I don't. See how that places me as Lord over the scripture? No, I'm going to sit under its teaching and say, God, what is it that you want to teach me? And then trust that. And then here's the most beautiful thing for us, guys. And then trust that God will fill you and I with his Holy Spirit that we would have the power to do those things. It's one thing to read that I'm to love my neighbor as I love myself. It's another thing to be filled with enough of God's Holy Spirit to go out and do it. But that's the joy that we have, is that our God is at work in us, the scripture says, not only providing the desire to do what pleases him, but the ability to do it as well. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that in a world where I don't know where to go for truth or I have to question the angle and the agenda of everything I read and hear, I love that I can just sit in front of your timeless and perfect word with no filters and just drink deeply. God, may we become a people of your word, letting it define our stances on everything. And God, I ask that you would fill us anew with your Holy Spirit, that you would send us out in radical and self-sacrificial love to the world that you gave your life to save, that we would be a people that reflect the heart of Jesus, that we would give ourselves away. God, and I pray that you would create in us obedient hearts, that in humility we would trust that you not only know best, but that you love us more than we even love ourselves, that apart from you there is no life, but in you, God, is the life that is truly life, Help us to just follow in behind you, Lord, and trust your leading as you empower us to follow you. Learn more about the church at www.theshoreline.org or stay connected with us through Facebook at facebook.com slash theshorelinechurch.org.